0: Stalag Luft III was a prison camp for allied prisoners who liked to escape. They were ones who, for the most part, had nothing else to do but sit around, and so they figured it was better to go someplace else where it was uh, freer. And so many of the individuals that were in the Stalag were ones who had uh, attempted to escape multiple times. The camp was intentionally designed to make sure that escape couldn't happen. This is a place they chose uh, the uh, ground uh, that the camp was built on with a specific reason. It was a yellow dirt that uh, would shift and and move, and so it would make it very difficult for anybody who decided maybe to perhaps tunnel out of the camp. It would make it almost impossible for them to do that because the soil quality was uh, bad. Uh, they took all of the huts that the prisoners were in and actually put them up on stilts so that you could see underneath the, the, uh, the huts that were there. They made sure that uh, they put uh, microphones in the ground about every 30 feet, about 9 feet down. They actually put stuff in the ground so that they could actually hear people perhaps digging out and be able to do this. They had a trench that was uh, dug all the way around the camp so as to hinder individuals perhaps digging out of the camp uh, or escaping over the fence and running away from the camp. Uh, That would hinder them along with everything else that you would expect in a normal prison camp. But as you have with prisoners, they have a lot of time on their hands and uh, as such it almost becomes a game to them to try and figure out how to leave because they have nothing else to really do creatively. And what you had with this prison camp is that you had uh, these individuals that started creating a plan that would get them out of the camp. They eventually started digging three tunnels. They named them Tom, Dick, and Harry, and these are the three tunnels that they had. But they figured out a, a way to be able to dig. Some of the individuals that were part of these airmen that had escaped were people who had worked in coal mines. They had done that before they uh, had been airmen and the like. And so they uh, began to figure out ways that they could begin to dig down through uh, the ground uh, and not be spotted by German uh, soldiers walking around. Uh, the, the, the soldiers, excuse me, the allies, uh, the British and the others and the Americans had figured out ways to distract the guards Or communicate the fact that the guards were coming near some of these places that uh, were being used to dig things out. Uh, The tunnels that they had were covered over by a a hot stove. The trap door was underneath that and they always kept it lit. And you go, why? Because it kept the German soldiers away from it and from touching it because it was always hot. But that was their trap door to get down underneath the ground. They dug uh, all three of these tunnels at least 30 feet down. They got to the point where they were digging and you say, well, where's all the dirt going? Because you have to go somewhere with the dirt. Well, what they were doing is they were bringing the sand up and they were putting it in pockets in their pants or they were uh, doing other things with their pants and they would then go to the gardens that some of the prisoners were uh, digging and uh, making and they would drop the sand there. It was a, quite an elaborate process of these individuals. They uh, ended up uh, getting to a point where the, the hole was about two feet wide. They had developed a trolley system to be able to move people back and forth and wheel them back and forth and be able to do this. Now, the Germans were not uh, ignorant uh, of some of the things that were going on because they actually found one of the tunnels. They were so impressed with themselves that they had found a tunnel and they actually went through and videotaped the finding of it and closed it off and whatever. And that they had missed the fact that there were two other tunnels uh, just as long and just as far that had been dug to that point. Uh, men actually, uh, they went through the, the, the means of this, that they would actually go into the tunnels in their long johns, not in their uniforms that they would have or that, because they didn't want any sign of dirt on them. So they they th- they thought of everything in order to try and escape. Got to the point where they were beginning to realize that uh, they were only going to be, if they ever escaped, be able to get about 200 men out on a, a break like this. And so they actually had a lottery and picked certain individuals and this to be a part of this escape. The night finally came in march of twenty uh, fourth of thousand nine hundred and forty four uh, that they decided they were going to escape. They started at about ten o 'clock at night, but in order to wheel themselves under the ground across underneath the camp and out beyond to the forest, it required them to wheel the trolley along for individuals to do this, and so every hour they were only getting about eight to ten individuals out of the tunnel and into the forest. It wasn't until 5 a.m. that one of the soldiers patrolling the outside of the trench line actually uh, nearly fell into the hole that was in the ground there and realized that something was going on. And he sounded the alarm and immediately uh, a search went out for these individuals to find them. By the time that German soldier had found uh, that hole in the ground, 76 men had actually escaped from that camp. All different nationalities, backgrounds and the like, and they began to scatter all sorts of different places. I mean, they had gotten themselves clothing that didn't look like uniforms. They had actually printed out documents or travel documents that they had taken parts of their shoes and made stamps out of their shoes to be able to make documents that looked official. They had all of that. And these men scattered across the countryside, but of out of those uh, men that escaped, the 76 that actually escaped, only three of them made it to freedom. Two of them left uh, that camp and were of Scandinavian origin and went up uh, to Denmark and caught a boat across to uh, the neutral country of Sweden. The other man was a Dutch man and he had gone all the way from this camp that was 100 miles south of Berlin, all the way to the southern tip of Spain to the the place known as Gibraltar, which was a British colony at the time, and he escaped there. There were 73 men that were actually captured. Eight of them were sent to a concentration camp, though they survived uh, the war. There were uh, others that were sent back to the same camp, but 50 of those men were chosen by Hitler because he was so angered by the fact that people were trying to escape from his camps, lovely facilities that they were, he was so upset by this that he had 50 of them executed, their, them burned, and then their ashes spread around the camp that they had escaped from. That adventure has uh, become to know be known as the Great Escape. You think about the Great Escape and there's... All these people that leave and only three make it. They were leaving because they wanted freedom from oppression. They wanted their liberty. They wanted to be able to do what they had done. They lived for the liberty and freedom that they had uh, being not a part of Nazi Germany, but being a part of the free world at the time. They were willing to risk everything. You have a story here. We could call it Jacob's great escape because they're the same kind of things that go on in this story that are part of that story of trickery deceptiveness but Jacob was trying to escape someone who had afflicted and made it made his life a misery at this point he was going back to the country that he was from the country where he had freedom The land of Canaan. Uh, He was headed back there. And what we have in this story is this Jacob who is, well, not the best of characters as we found. But what we're going to find is that he is becoming a person who's more and more seeing the hand of God in his life. That there's a God that's involved in these things. And in the end of this story, you're going to see the fact that Jacob recognizes that God is the one who gave him rescue that allowed him to escape not his craftiness and all the things that he had figured out and in order to be able to leave it was God who gave him escape and for us this morning as we look a passage of scripture like this we ought to come up with just this understanding that the child of God escapes affliction by the direct hand of God it's not our craftiness it's not our smarts it's not any of those things we escape some of the difficulties we're in uh not by who we are and what we are it's because of the god that we have and so for us we'll look at the story illustrating that of the story of jacob and his great escape You see this escape attempt, uh, we have uh, last week looked at the discussion where Jacob talks with his wives and it seems like the only time they ever agreed on something was this, that they were ready to leave. They wanted to leave their father too and he simply states this, God told me to leave, you look at Jacob's sons, they're mad at me. You find that at the beginning of the chapter, they're eyeing him because he's taking away what they perceive to be their inheritance. Laban no longer is looking at him with favor and God comes to him and says, it's time for you to leave. Jacob makes this all clear to his wives uh, that this is the case, but he doesn't think that if he goes and tells Laban, it's time for me to leave, that it will go well. So he devises this method of escape and you say, well, what does he do? Well, his first thing is this, is to get uh, leaving when Laban is distracted. You say, well, what's, how does he distract Laban? Well, you find this in verse uh, number 17, or excuse me, verse number 19. When Laban is uh, out, he leaves to go shear sheep. This gives us an indicator, this is probably the springtime, because that's when you typically shear sheep. But this would have been a massive process, especially if you're dealing with flocks by the, the size of what we're reading here. It would have required many men... You'd have had to hire individuals on uh, to help with this process. uh, And it would have been a multiple day process. It usually wasn't done where uh, the family lived. It was done where the, the flock was at. And so as you read this story, Jacob figures out the best time for me to be able to do this is when Laban's not around, he can't figure out what's going on. Most of the help will be gone so that they aren't going to be able to easily report this. And then we head out. And so he decides this, that if I can do this, I I, I do this during shearing season and then get some distance. I'm going to try and make it to Mount Gilead, which if you figure that out, it's about a 500 mile journey. But he goes, if I can get to that point, I think I will be okay. And so he's figuring that if I can put some distance between me and uh, Laban, we'll be okay. But when you look at this great escape and you read the story, when Laban finally finds out that uh, the family has gone away, verse twenty-two it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob was fled, and he is not happy with this. But it doesn't seem like he leaves immediately, because if you figure it out, there seems to be three days he finds out, and seven days he finally catches up to Jacob. There is no way that Jacob could have covered this five hundred miles with flocks, with family. I mean it would have been completely unreasonable for making this so it may have been told as we read the story laban three days after they left that they were gone but he was still in the midst of shearing sheep he comes back and then gathers the people he's going to take with him and the gathering there as you read the statement of the uh, what he gathers together he takes his brethren with him and pursued seven days journey uh this is a military term it's like he's coming after Jacob. It's not that he's just simply saying, hey, you forgot something. You know, before you get too far away, I'll get it to you. No, he's coming with an armed group of people. And you say, Well, Jacob, you know, kind of figure this out. Maybe he didn't have all the details right. He could have escaped. Probably not. But in this escape, Jacob had kind of forgotten one person in this. It was God. God steps in in the midst of the story. It's all of a sudden He shows up. Verse 24. He's trying to escape. It doesn't seem like He's going to. And God suddenly becomes a part of the story. And verse number 24, you see this, that God came to Laban the Syrian, which is intentional by the author, and a dream by night and said unto him, take heed that thou speak not to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, distinction is made here here you got jacob who's the syrian he's part of the old country he's now in the old land here you got jacob going back to the land of promise you got the syrian but god says to this man you aren't supposed to do anything to him not a single thing it would be harmful to you to do this now silence is not imposed uh, on him rather if he feels that he has a legitimate grievance laban is not to prosecute or prosecute or to take legal action of any kind towards jacob and that's what it's saying it's we we kind of get to the story and you read that laban just talks and talks and talks and talks and talks and he says all sorts of stuff that seems to be uh accusations well what the lord's saying is you can't take any legal action And what God does is, one has put it this way, God corked the bottle of Laban's aggressiveness right there. He stops Laban. I mean, it's reminding us of occasions where Abraham and Isaac, remember those occasions where he goes to Abimelech or Pharaoh and other foreign leaders, and God all of a sudden comes in and goes, don't you touch him, lest thou die? That's the kind of story we have here. He have Laban who has got ill intentions towards Jacob, and God steps in and goes, don't touch him. Don't hurt him. Because if you do, you have to deal with me. And so you have this escape, and it looks like it's not going to happen, that Laban's going to catch up, but God intervenes. And so that brings us to a section of these accusations now that Laban makes towards Jacob. He accuses uh, Jacob of all sorts of things, and and from us it just seems kind of silly what he's accusing uh, them of, but he's frustrated, angered. And you see some of the things he accuses Jacob of. He first of all just simply says this, you carried my family away captive you read it there in verse number 26 he says this what hast thou done that thou hast stolen away unawares to me and carried away my daughters as captives taken with the sword now you think through this this is a, a complete fabrication because the wives were happy to go with jacob it wasn't as if they were being dragged by the hair uh, out of the house and the tent and going off to the, that that's not what was going on they were happy to do this, but he is going, You've taken away, and notice the way he states it, it's not your wives. I mean, that's the binding thing now that they're the wives of Jacob. He goes, You took away my daughters as if they were captives. I mean, that's a, a claim that is bad. He said this I couldn't have a send off party. I mean, look at what he says in verse number 27. Wherefore, didst thou flee away secretly and steal away from me? And didst not tell me that I might have sent thee away with mirth and song and tabret and with harp? You know, we would have had a big party and I would have gotten the best band to send you off. That's what he's declaring. And it was normal with feasts to do this. We have a feast in the New Testament where you have a young son who's wandered off, a prodigal son, and he comes back and you read about that feast that is made for this prodigal son. The oldest brother comes back and what does he hear? He hears music playing. I mean, this is part of the culture back then. If you were throwing a feast or a party, you would have music. And he goes, hey, I would have done that. One commentator says, do you really believe that? The man who has been so tight with his wallet, you know, you couldn't get the wallet open, that he's suddenly going to open his wallet on an occasion like this? To get the best he possibly can for somebody else as they go away. But he, he, he claims this I, I could have had a send off party and you, di- you didn't allow me to do that. Or, as he says, this I didn't get to show my love and care to my family. It says, this, verse 28 Hast thou not suffered me to kiss my sons and my daughters? Thou hast done foolishly in doing so. I couldn't give them a hug. You know that warm, affectionate pat that I have in the heart, and you're going, "Laban has none of these things." I mean, he's the man who gave away his daughters in a, a sneaky trade uh, and used a custom uh, to give away his daughters. He, he's not a caring man. He's a man who's all about himself, but yet he is making this seem like it's not his fault. It's Jacob's fault. And he makes a statement, I could have hurt you, but he at least acknowledges this. Verse 29, it is the power of my hand to hurt you, but the God of your father, no, God stopped me. You just listen, he said, I could, I, could have, I could have done you harm, but, but God, God stepped in and I couldn't do a single thing makes all these accusations and none of them are really true none of them really would have happened but he does make one accusation that is accurate he says this you stole my god's He accuses Jacob of leaving and taking what are known as the teraphim. Uh, These are what you would call small statues that you would have in a house. You can go to, I remember seeing these in the Louvre uh, or the British Museum. They got a whole bunch of these and there's these little statues that people would have had in their house. They put them up on a shelf in a room or that. And and in this culture, uh, these were the things that were very important. If you had these gods in your house, it meant blessing for you. It was blessings from the ancestors uh, for this. The person that was in possession of these things uh, was probably the one who was going to inherit what was next. So, you know, whoever got the teraphim handed to them uh, when somebody died was the family leader and the like. And so he is upset that these have disappeared. He accuses Jacob of doing this. Now, you would think, yeah, probably Jacob would have done this. I mean, has he not gone through his whole life seeking to get advantage of other people? And this would be just another way of kind of pulling the strings on everything and going, okay, I've got the teraphim, so he he doesn't have any blessing from his gods anymore. And Jacob is upset that he's been accused because this is one of the times where he can go, I'm innocent. I haven't done a single thing, which is rare in Jacob's life to this point. What he doesn't realize is that Rachel is the one who's stolen this. It's kind of humorous as you read through this story uh, and you look at how Jacob, or excuse me, uh, Laban does his search. just kind of follow it through as uh, Jacob goes well you can find whoever it is and if you find it you can go ahead and take him away you can kill him if you want that's fine but we haven't stolen your idols not knowing that his favorite wife has done this but look at how the search goes Uh, verse 33 Laban went into Jacob's tent you know first chief suspect goes in there doesn't find it there well who could be the second suspect well let's go find Leah so she go, he goes through Leah's tent. Uh, then she, he goes through the two maidservants' tents. You know, These are ones who don't have great advantage, so they think you know, maybe they stole the idols and whatever. And, and he finally gets to Rachel's tent. And Rachel's there, and they have parked everything, and they've taken the saddles off the camel. And you go, What's, what, what would the saddle have been like? It would have been a box that you could have packed stuff in uh, and be able to do this. And she's just sitting in her tent, and he's going through and looking around for this. And she goes, sorry, I can't get up. It's the custom of women. I can't get up right now. And he goes, okay, well, that's fine. You know, but I'm looking around for this idol. Well, ironically, as Rachel says this, I can't get up because this is the custom of women. Remember how Laban had deceived Jacob? Remember the whole argument where Jacob has worked seven years and he's looking forward to marrying Rachel and he has the whole wedding ceremony and the feast that goes along with it. And the next morning he wakes up and he realizes that he marries Leah and he comes back to Jacob and he says to Jacob, You've deceived me. And he just simply goes, Oh, sorry. It's a, same term, it's a custom. That the oldest daughter is given before the youngest daughter. I'm so sorry. And so the irony that's at play here is this. Laban, by a custom, cheated somebody else. And Rachel here cheats her dad by a custom. The irony of all of this is that as she's sitting there and going through all of this, that would have made the gods unclean useless, powerless, but it's humorous. As you think through this, the accusation is you stole my gods. As one commentator put it, it's that he invented a new crime, godnapping. How do you kidnap gods? If they are all powerful and they have all strength, how can you possibly steal them? And if they were stolen, could they not act for themselves? There's an irony in this fact that as mankind has gone through its history, first of all making statues that are idols, and now making things that aren't necessarily idols in themselves, that they've made things and they've put their trust and their faith in these things. They go through this. The irony is, is that those gods are nothing. Just reading through the book of Isaiah and you get to chapter uh, 40 40 through about 45, there's multiple times where Isaiah goes after idols. He just simply goes, here you've got craftsmen who craft them and they carve ears in these gods and they carve noses in the gods and they carve eyes in these gods as if they're going to see. And they don't. They have to pick them up and carry them around because they don't have legs that make them mobilized." And then you have this about these gods as you, you think through the gods. If you're making it out of wood, you have individuals who go out into the forest and find a tree and they go, this will make a good idol. And they carve the idol out. Well, what do they do with the rest of the wood? They go out and use it in their fires. They consume part of this god with fire. See, the irony here is you've got a man by the name of Laban who is an unsaved man he's got his gods that he is uh depending on he's upset that they're now gone but his gods he should see this that his gods are nothing and he's going to see this by the end that his god is nothing in comparison to the god of jacob now, questions are asked here. Why did Rachel steal? I mean, this is, this is a great controversy you read through this passage. Why did Rachel steal these gods? Did she believe that these gods had power? She may still have, but she's been making reference to God already that she believes in Him. Uh, it could very well be that she just stole them because this is just a sign of prosperity that she's stolen from her father. Uh, some have just stated it. She stole it just to spite Him we're not given the reason why she does this but in a whole process you have proven that the gods created by mankind have no power they can be stolen they can be godnapped they can be taken and that's in contrast to the living god who has the actually the ability in the story to step in and to talk to an individual and say you're going no farther you'll not say certain things you won't do certain things and that's what's at play in all of this with this accusation you stole my gods what your god can be stolen what kind of a god is that and that allows in response for a justification on jacob's side and what you find starting in verse number 35, actually it's verse number 36, you have this lengthy, lengthy statement made by Jacob. I'm guessing in, as you read it, it's a statement that he had said over and over in his mind, over and over again, but never had said it. You, know, you ever have those conversations that you would like to say certain things to people? and you've just rehearsed it in your head if i ever get the opportunity i'll say this but you never say it this is kind of what you have going on here jacob for 20 years has gone underneath uh, the affliction of working for laban and everything that goes on here and he just lets loose with what is wrong with that and you see this in verse number, 30, excuse me, verse 36. Jacob was wroth. he chode. he ar- basically argued, but he's chiding him. Pointing the finger at him, I'm guessing as he's speaking this, Jacob answered and said to Laban, "What is my trespass? What is my sin that thou hast so hotly pursued me? I mean, am I not a person who owns the property I've taken? The cattle, the sheep, it's mine, my wife's, my children." They're all mine. What, what are you accusing me of? Why are you pursuing me? Verse 37, Whereas thou hast searched all my stuff, and hast not found all of thy household stuff, set it here before my brethren and thy brethren, that we may judge betwixt me. Did you find your gods? No, you didn't. Or verse 38, This twenty years I have been with thee, and the ewes and the she-goats have not cast their young, and the rams of the flock have I not eaten, that which was torn of beast i brought not unto thee i bear the loss of it of the my hand didst thou require it whether stolen by day or stolen by night he's just simply going through when i kept your flocks there were occasions where things happened and i took care of it personally to my cost animals that were hurt animals that were stolen these things i took care of myself Verse 40, thus I was in the day. The drought consumed me. Frost by night, my sleep departed mine eyes. He's just simply going, you don't understand the number of times I end up having to take care of animals and it was in the middle of a you know, heat wave. Or were there other times where I was shivering all night because it was so cold but I was responsible for the animals and I lost sleep trying to take care of these things? Do you not remember all those times for 20 years that I was doing things like this for you? Or how about this? Verse 41, I have been 20 years in thy house. I served thee 14 years for thy two daughters, six years for thy cattle, and thou hast changed my wages 10 times. We really don't have, you know, some say ten times just indicates that he's always changing it. But the fact is, is Laban probably is with this flock deal that was there. As you read through the account, it seems like it's always changing what he's giving to Jacob. And Jacob goes, you did this to me, he over and over and over and over again but you get to verse 42 and here's the important thing because jacob suddenly realizes and he is declaring it publicly that even though these things happen to them there is a god in heaven not a god who can be stolen not a god who can be carried off here is this god verse 42 except the god of my father the god of abraham the fear of isaac had been with me surely thou hast sent me now away now empty god has seen my affliction and my labor of my, the labor of my hands and rebuked thee yesternight or last night he just simply says there's a god in heaven and he's the one who judges and he's able to see what goes on he knows these things He knows what you did to me. And he is the one who stepped in last night. He's the God of my father. The God of my grandfather. The God of Abraham. He is, and here's the unusual term that's there. You ought to underline this because this is a really unusual term that he applies to God. But you see this in verse number 42. He says, this is the God of my father, the God of Abraham. The fear of Isaac. And it's not the normal word for fear okay we're told that we're supposed to have a fear of the lord you go what does that mean we're supposed to have an awe of him just knowing what he's like and going what an incredible god this is a different kind of word for fear it's the idea of uh, one that is uh, dreadful frightening or you might say this that he is the awe-inspiring one He is the one who at times can cause people to quake in fear. He's the one who can stop armies in their tracks. He can bring down kings who have been bold and bring them down in an instant. He's able to do that. He's that kind of a God. And him using this title, this is the one who was the fear of Isaac. This God who is this awesome, incredible, dreadful God. You know, we use that term dreadful not in the sense of the the horror sense, but he is one to be feared. You don't want to cross over a line against him. He says, this is the God who stepped in. This is the God who took care of me. I mean, as one said this, this Jacob's God is the dreadful one of Isaac, the one who inspires and causes dread and fear. What is precisely meant to, what God does in these verses is that he is the God who intimidates Laban. He threatens him that he should try to harm Jacob if he should try to harm Jacob in any way. He so much as says, if you threaten Jacob, Laban, it'll be the last thing you do. You harm Jacob, and as this commentator says, your toast. God, this God that Laban had met, is the God that is the intimidator. He has the ability to carry out what he says. He's not, as we said, he's not a God who has to be carried around, can be hauled off by people can be stolen and god No, he's a God who can do just what he says, and no one is going to stop him from doing that. No one can hinder his hand. His arm is not too short that it cannot save and rescue and be able to do this. This is the God that he serves. The fear of Isaac is the awesome one of Isaac. He is uh, the one who causes dread as Laban is now finding out that this is a a god he should fear a god he should be aware of and this is the high point of the section and and it's at this point that laban goes okay you know what i think it's time we make a treaty we make a deal here You see this after the whole statement is made by Jacob, and he talks about the terror of God. Verse 43, Laban answered and said unto Jacob, These daughters are my daughters, these children are my children, these cattle are my cattle, and all that thou seest is thine. What can I do this day unto these my daughters and their children which are born? Now, verse 44, Come thou, let us make a covenant, or we would say this, a treaty, an agreement. And you go, what's the agreement? That we never bother each other again. Jacob's had enough of his own reflection in Laban. Laban's had enough of the reflection of Jacob. And Laban is the one that suggests this whole deal. It's sort of like what you found previously in the stories of Abraham and Isaac. We sometimes just pass over the stories, but you have an occasion in Abraham's life where the Philistines come out and go, let's make a treaty with you. It's obvious that God's blessing you and taking care of you and you have the whole episode there with Abraham and Beersheba and these wells being dug and a covenant being made and sworn with the Philistines and it's basically saying, you know what? We'll not mess with you, you don't mess with us, just just keep, you know, keep from each other and keep safe. Same thing happens for Isaac. Isaac has the story where the Abimelech, the leader of the Philistines comes out to him and makes a deal with him because he goes, it's obvious that you're being blessed and here what Jacob Laban says to Jacob let's make a deal let's make a treaty that we don't cross each other's path again and there's this whole ceremony that takes place and, and there's a lot of big words I kind of laughed as Brian who was trying to read uh, 40, verse 47 i'm just like how in you know that's like one of the toughest words to actually read jegersa hadutha there you go And it's basically the naming from different ways, both in Syrian and in Hebrew, of a heap of witness or a heap of stones. What happens here is that they pile up a bunch of stones and they actually eat a meal on top of the one set of stones. They actually set up a pillar. So they set up two things that are here. And they basically say, this is going to be the memorial place that is basically saying and witnessing this treaty that it's been done. That you're not going to do harm to me, I'm not going to do harm to you. But also, they name it not just a heap of stones or a heap of witness. They actually name the place, as you see in verse number uh, 48 at the end, they name the place Galid and Mizpah. It's the same word, but it means just simply this, Witness. And you're going, are they saying these stones are witness to the fact that we've made this treaty or whatever? No, there's actually a statement connected to it. It's one of the most misused and misunderstood statements in all of Scripture. Verse number 49, it's called Mizba, for he said, The Lord watch between me and thee when we are absent one from another. Now, I say it's one of the most misused statements in Scripture. This is the type of thing you find on greeting cards. You'll hear this read at weddings. One pastor said this, he remembered every youth group meeting, they used to get done with it, and before they left, that they would actually quote this verse before they left. Pastors at times in churches will pray this as the closing prayer, the benediction. And if you read it in the context, you go, well, great, the Lord's going to watch over us until we get back together again. That is not what that verse is saying. That's not the context of the verse, and that's why I always tell you, context is very important sometimes we like verses and then when you look at the context you go "Ooh, this is one of them you don't want this written on a wedding band i mean i've seen that too that they, people have this written into to that type of thing jewelry because what is being said here is this is that god is basically going to keep a watch on you a paraphrase is one's put it this way I don't trust you out of my sight, but since I can no longer personally hold you accountable, may God do so. Or it's even more than that, it's the idea that you don't cross this line and I won't cross this line, and if you do, God will deal with it. You know, the joke, the joke then is you read this, you go, so if I'm saying, you know, I pray this at the end of, you know, a Ruth group time or the service, it's basically saying, you stay away from me and I'll stay away from you and God will take care of you. Don't get close to me. And, and my guess is in, in, in this final statement here, if they could be added, they would simply say, you're a scoundrel. You you stay away from me. You're a scoundrel. I'm a scoundrel. But don't get close to me. And if you do, God will take care of this. This stone is witness, and we both agree to that. And they do, because you get to the end of this, and it says in verse 53, the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of their father, Judge, betwixt us. They're basically calling on all their gods. The God of Isaac, the God of Nahor, which would have been the gods that had been stolen and hijacked. Judge betwixt us, they're basically saying, God's going to take care of this. But it's not going to be just any God because you have at the end that Jacob swear by what? Look at the end of verse 53. He swears by the one who is what? He uses this word again. He is the God of the fear of his father Jacob. He's the dreadful one. He is the awesome and and frightening one. He is the one who can carry out what is said here. And he swears by that name. He says, that's the God that I serve who can actually do what he claims to do. He can protect in the worst of circumstances. When you get to the end of this, that Jacob worships God, verse 54, it says that Jacob offered sacrifice upon the mount. I mean, he gets done with this and he, one last time, he's before Laban and it's his well he hasn't been a very good testimony but at this point he's going this is the god i worship and i am publicly in a ceremony with all of us here letting you know this is the great god that i serve the god of my father abraham and isaac the one who is the fear and then they say this they eat bread they ate bread tarried all night in the mount and then they get up and they leave end of story but it's only going to get a little bit more complicated as we go into next week's with Jacob suddenly remembering I offended somebody back home Esau but at this point the way the story reads out God's taken care of Jacob he got into 20 years that he has been mistreated he's been afflicted by this man really this man's been a terror to him, a difficult thing uh, to him. But in all of that, what he suddenly realizes is this, is that God has been with me this whole time and in the end, God's the one who gave me escape. He's delivered me. If we put it in, in more theological terms, He's delivered me. I mean, this is the theme of Scripture. That God is able to you know as him says to deliver thee it's talking mainly about salvation but the idea is that he is able to deliver thee in any situation i mean you look at the book of genesis to this point uh, god was able to rescue noah out of the flood god was able to rescue abraham uh, from people who didn't well were angry with him same for isaac he offends people god protects him you have this story jacob has individuals that are chasing after him and we're seeing the next story esau showing up he protects him from a brother who's mad at him coming with an army god's able to do that i mean the people that would have been reading this book first time you say who would it have been it would have been people who are standing waiting to go in the promised land they would have experienced the deliverance of god from a very cruel man uh it's the story of the book of exodus you have pharaoh who makes life difficult as difficult as he possibly can for these individuals he changes uh, what they're supposed to be working on they're supposed to be making bricks now you don't get the material to work on those bricks now you have to go find the material for the bricks and you better do this or else you're going to be in trouble you're going to be punished for not carrying this out I mean this is the type of man that's doing that one who is trying to kill off the offspring of the children of this uh, nation and god came along and was by his own hand able to deliver the nation of israel through the ten plagues and then get them through a body of water that man couldn't have moved but god was able to do it And then brought the final judgment. And you kind of think of it this way. That Red Sea, as it states at the end of that story with the Red Sea, it was the last time they saw the Egyptians and Pharaoh. Sort of like this story, where it's the last time that Jacob sees Laban. God was able to deliver the nation of Israel. And think about this. When the nation of Israel left, they had been slaves. But they were like kings. You go, why? Because they spoiled the Egyptians. Because when they left, they said knocked on doors and said, we're, we're leaving. The Egyptians said, great, here, have this. Please, go, as fast as you can. And they're handing them their gems and their gold and the silver and all of the good materials that they have as far as clothing and handing it to them and going, please, leave. It's sort of like this story. Jacob is leaving and he's got the best of everything. And you say, well, who did that? It was God doing it for him. You get to the New Testament and this God is just the same. I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like, okay, was there any escape stories in the Bible? And my mind immediately went to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, you have the story of a man there by the name of Peter. You may be familiar with him but he's in a difficult spot. He's in prison, and he's waiting for his execution the next day. Herod's you know, basically rubbing his hands together and going, I've already executed one apostle. Everybody was happy with me doing this, and I'm going to execute Peter tomorrow, and this will be fantastic. My poll ratings will go up with the Jews uh, to a number that's never been seen before, and he's excited about this. And you get in the story, and in the middle of the night, the angel comes, wakes Peter up, tells him, really? Yes? Yes? yes this is not a dream okay put your shoes on and come on come on come on come on you know this is really the case and he walks out between 16 of those soldiers that are there none of them see him the door as he walks out says it opens up automatically the scripture says it's the first automatic door in the history of mankind but the door opens of itself Peter walks out into the street, and what does he do? He looks around, and he goes to the church, and he starts knocking on the door where he thinks they're meeting. And when this happens, and you have the whole story that's there, but when they finally answer the door there in Acts chapter 12, it just simply says this, that Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord... Had done what? Brought him out of prison. No, he's just simply saying, Look, the Lord's allowed me to escape. The army and the might of the, the, the Roman government could not stop God. This is a God to be feared. Last night, it's one of those nights where you wake up we've got several cats and that's part of our problem is that we've got cats and times you wake up and i was just thinking through this sermon again you just you know why you're awake you're you know thinking of different things and there's a passage that went through my head about this this very thing it's one that we're familiar with you probably could quote just simply this the lord is my shepherd i shall not want He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the path of uh, righteousness for my name's sake. And you just kind of go, oh, that's, you know, God takes us through the really good times, you know, where the sun is shining, everything like that, and God's able to take care of us in situations like that. And you go, no, because you get to the end of this and it starts talking about this. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death i will fear no evil why for thou art with me god's going to take care of me right through the worst of circumstances he's going to take care of me in those times and not only this this is the passage that kind of uh, sat with me last night when thinking about here jo- jacob sits down with a meal with laban and says i serve a god who is able to do as he says what does this psalm say about our shepherd and what he's capable of doing for us verse 5 says this thou preparest a table uh, before me in the presence of mine enemies that's what you have here god has allowed jacob to escape And now he's sitting and eating a meal with his enemy, but it's because what God has done and God is the one who's protecting him in the presence of his enemies who would like to do him harm. But they can't. Now I did think about this. You preach a sermon like this and people will go, but wait a second. I can think of people where God didn't deliver them from mean people. Afflictions in this life. They suffered all their life through difficult people. You know was God absent in that? And you think about the end of that psalm, what does it simply say is this: "Even in all that, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, pursue me all the days of my life. And what's the great escape? I shall dwell with the Lord uh, in the house of the Lord forever." It may be that individuals do suffer through this whole life, but in the end, individuals who are followers of God are going to escape the worst of enemies. The adversary of our souls the one who has sought the destruction of creation and all mankind has sought both the physical and spiritual destruction uh, of each individual and has made life here difficult it's no longer the garden of eden it's because satan is one who roams and uh, reigns right now on this earth and when we die what happens we escape his presence never again to see any of the difficulty we have when you think about what heaven's like it's this that there is no more crying there is no more tears there's not ones who lie there's not one who cheats and we might put it this way there aren't people who are like jacob who cheat us they're trying to get an advantage of us we've escaped and you go why it's because of our god god who is the deliverer the god who can defeat the worst of enemies stay their hand jesus christ on the cross what did he do he stayed the hand of the devil it talks about in colossians that he triumphed over the devil and sin this god is your god he is the god who can in an instant give you escape and deliverance from the worst of circumstances if he deems it's the right time to step in And you may go, it doesn't seem like it's changing in this life. Well, you've been promised, don't worry, because you will one day dwell in the house of the Lord forever, and you're never going to see any of these situations happen again. That's the God we serve. The God of Abraham, the dread of Isaac, the God of Jacob who allowed them to escape, the God of Peter, the God of Noah, that's the same God we serve he hasn't changed as we heard in the song just before the service. My almighty, unchangeable God. He's the same God He was 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago. And He'll be the same God right on into eternity. He's the God who is able to deliver. He is the one who can stop enemies from doing what they would desire to do because He truly is God. He's not like any other God that mankind creates because he is god and he can be your god he wants to be your god if you just simply trust him and trust his son that he's held out as the gift that you're deserving of let's pray lord i don't know what people are going through in this room There could be afflictions in this life that have been brought upon them by people who are mean spirited, nasty, sinners. And they make life a trial, a tribulation, an affliction. And at times, uh, individuals in this room that know you and trust in you may feel like there's no hope. There's no escape that they're hopeless. Lord, may we look at a passage like this and just be reminded that you are the God who is the awesome one, the dreadful one, the one who can do what you need to do in an instant to stop the plans, the attacks, the afflictions that others bring. But may we also be willing to trust You that perhaps those afflictions we're going through are just an opportunity for us to be ones who reflect praise to You. And even though the difficulty's there, we're still going, this one is my God. His Son saved me, and I believe in His Son. And He is one who is able to deliver and give me strength to go through something like this. But we do rejoice in the fact that the afflictions, the tribulations, the difficulties of this life, we will escape one day. Not because of our craftiness and because of our work, but because of what your Son Jesus did on the cross. And just simply by us clinging to Him, we will one day be in your presence of that perfect place, where there's perfect peace. Difficulties of life are gone, and we will escape The things that go on here so lord may we find comfort in a passage like this as we go through the difficulty maybe even today as we go home or we're with others that uh, we know are going to make life difficult for us may we just simply go i have a god who knows and sees and he will one day ultimately deliver me and my soul may rejoice in that and this we pray in the name of christ amen